Warning, the podcast you're about to listen to may contain graphic descriptions of violent assaults, murder, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast, The Murder of Alex Johnson, Part 3 of 4. that typically Ray's office isn't shy about trying cases. You know, uh, there are several offices and attorneys that worry about their clearance rate and such. He just believed that, you know, we're going to give her a try. We're going to try for justice. We're not guaranteeing anything, but we believe there's enough and we're not afraid to fight. I did want to ask, I think it was presented to you all by Mr. Larson. How did Alex Johnson and Mark know each other or did they were they acquaintances or how did they know each other? They were really good friends. Uh, they'd met through mutual friends and had known each other for a couple of years and then developed a very close friendship themselves. Uh, we believe that they'd met at, uh, I don't know what it's called now, but Linus Bar down on campus. Every Sunday they'd meet there and have beers and hang out with other friends. So they were very close friends, which is a point of this that always bothered me. It's one thing. Dave, if you and I had just met and we're doing a drug deal and I think you do something shady and I pull out a gun and shoot you, how you go to beating one of your best friends to death, how do you get there? I I just, I can't comprehend it. I get moment of passion, stuff like that, but this was calculated, premeditated. We were able to prove it was premeditated later in the investigation. I, I don't know how you do that to someone you share a drink with. I've thought the same thing. And then when he's dancing later at Trust on that video, Two those hours are the later. Things. Yeah. I mean, we've seen some stuff before and, and you hit, you go down that dark road, but I've thought the same thing uh, when I looked at this is that's a big stretch and a big jump really fast, especially yes. with the premeditation. Yeah. And then that much effort in a beating like that. Yeah. It's a very personal. It's not a gunshot. Now, did, did Alex know? Tiny up to this point, were they also friends? They were not friends. Uh, Alex knew him as Mr. Taylor's associate driver helper. Mr. Ballard was around quite often, but he's not very talkative, not very friendly. He knew his role, and I think Mr. Taylor made sure he knew his role. Um, It wasn't there to be a friend and a buddy. You're not a peer. You know, you're here to drive us around. If people start messing with us, you take care of business. So, yeah, it would be a real stretch to call Alex Johnson and Timothy Ballard friends. Okay. So at this point, where are we in the investigation? What happens after you've been given the the green light to go ahead with your your idea of trying this without a body? Well, the the obvious— Obvious next step was to try to get Mr. Ballard to headquarters to do a formal interview and interrogation with him. We want him on our turf where he's feeling uncomfortable. We're feeling very comfortable. It's our house, our rules. Um, and we tried to, we had Steve McCown contact him. It's like, hey, sorry we keep bugging you, but we got some more questions. Do you mind if we, you can come down? You know, we don't want to keep bothering you at your house. 
And he's like, no, no, sure, that's that's fine. We can do that. Um, so we're starting to worry, is he getting on to us? So we set up surveillance cars. Chris and Bill uh, were there, set up off near his house. So when he got into the car, they were going to follow to make sure, like, oh, he's going to I-75, Rob. He's skipping town. So we would have marked cars there to pull him over if, if that had been the case. But uh, And I'm texting Mr. Ballard through this whole thing. And it's like, are you on your way? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm close. Um, we just need to, we're a couple minutes away. And then I get a text. I'm like, sorry, man, we're going to have to reschedule. I was just in a wreck. And I'm like, bull. You're, he's Now he's just avoiding us. He's, And then I get a call from Chris like, you wouldn't believe this dumb son of a bitch just got into a wreck. So he really got into a wreck. Yeah. You can't make this up. Yeah. And it was so, we were all set to go. And it was like, golly. So now we still have to play nice. Like, oh my God, are you okay? Well, I'm fine, but I think my my wife's a little hurt. She needs to go to the hospital. And we're like, oh, yeah, no, take care of your family. That family comes first. If it's not too big of a burden, I'll call you tomorrow or the next day and we'll try to reschedule. And he's like, man, I really appreciate that. That's not a big deal. We'll, we'll certainly make it happen. And Steve did very well because Steve had built rapport with the FEMA friend of his and Mr. Ballard. Steve drove to the accident scene. And, of course, Bill and I are staying off where they don't notice us. And Steve's helping her out of the car, and they wait for the ambulance. And Steve played a perfect role to where he had no clue that we wanted him to come in and answer some tough questions. So Steve did very well at that. I was going to come back to that. How important is that chemistry? Because at any given time, from what I'm hearing so far, four or five of you all could have interacted at any given time with him. Mm -hmm. And you specifically mentioned earlier that you sent Steve. How important is that chemistry, and and when do you start identifying that, and what keeps somebody else from saying, no, I'm going to go talk to him? It's kind of early on. I mean, we knew Mr. Ballard was from uh, rural Alabama, and when he lived up here, he had family, uh, one of the surrounding counties in central Kentucky, but very rural upbringing, and Steve was the same way. He's from eastern Kentucky, so it seemed like a good match personality-wise, and it proved to be accurate. If they didn't get along that first go around, then we would have substituted somebody else to go speak with them the next time. But Steve uh, really knew the part to play with Tiny, and that, that paid off for us. True. He's fluent in hillbilly. Yes, I mean, is. English is a second language. Yes. Exactly. And he does speak some cursive hillbilly. So. <laughs> exactly. Good but, deal. Uh, th- I, we find that the probably the biggest failure of any detective is pride. If you can, there's a difference between ownership in your case and pride getting involved in your case and making the wrong move. So that's another thing a, a good homicide detective has to have. And there's no pride. There was no pride up there at that time where, right. hey, we just want to solve this for the family. Yeah. Like Chris and I have, I'd say we are roughly the same style of interviewer. Um, and I think we can branch off a little bit here and there. But you, if you branch off too far from who you are, I think you appear false. So I, I've done this before. Like if I'm in an interview, it's like, I just don't think he's connecting with me. There's a, there's a, a gap between us. You know who's different than me? Albert Johnson. So Albert's very almost father-like. Yes. Very kind yes. and slow and patient. Like priest-like? And, yeah. Yeah, no. And I'm, I know yeah, as soon as you said his name. I, he's yeah. just a different gear than right. I am. Yeah. And so I've asked him to go in, and he's gotten admissions confessions on my case I mean, Chris is right. You can't let pride get in the way. It's whatever it takes to get the job done, yeah. you know, and if it's a different speed of interviewer, then by all means do it. 
I've always said too that that humility is part of a team. Yes, is that if if the team people don't have that degree of humility, you don't have a team anymore, and yeah. that's another golden part of it. But yeah, as soon as you said Albert Johnson, that's the first thing I thought is that you're right. His rhythm, his pace, and his delivery yes. is golden. I think. Yes. I mean, he does really good. Yes, he does. So what do we do at what do we do at this point in our investigation? Well, there was another. We gave him his two days grace. Um, we set up another time, and I believe it was like two in the afternoon. And he's like, yeah, I'll be down. And then he calls like an hour before. He's like, my wife can't leave work. She's in Clark County and she has the car. And we're like, oh, okay, uh, let us get back to you. We got something going here anyway. At that point, we all sit around. It's like, we're wasting too much time here. Um, let's go to him. I was going to say, did you offer him a ride down? Well, at that point, we would have already been on his turf anyway. Um, and so there's that awkward drive in the car where you start talking about the case, but you're not ready to start talking about the case. Uh, you want to just immediately start going into your interview, whatever plan you had. So we called him and said, Hey, uh, you know, we understand. Don't worry your wife coming back into town. No hurry. If it's okay, we'll just, we'll just come out and talk to you. And then he was like, well, I've got a cold. I don't want to get you guys sick. And we're like, well, this is a murder investigation. If, if we get the sniffles, we'll be okay. Um, so we set up a time and, uh, yeah, six or seven of us went over there and it was decided that since Steve had already built a great rapport with Mr. Ballard, he would go in with me. Typically it would have been me and Chris since it was our case, but we needed that segue to Mr. Ballard. It's like, we're friends and here's my friend. So we're all friends. So we got invited into the house and sat down and, uh, started our interview what was your first thought when you saw this mammoth of a man called Good tiny Lord, he's huge he really was it's you can't really describe i mean it really is a doorway a human occupies an entire doorway height and width yeah he was scary big and again knowing his violent history and now we're in this very small house and he probably doesn't want to go to prison ever again so he really has nothing to lose if he, you know, gets what's going on and decides to to go for it, you know. And he, yeah, I have no doubt that Mr. Ballard could have very easily taken care of me and Steve McCown physically. So it was, uh, it was a, a tense moment. But again, it's we're nice. He's nice. So you can sense when things are starting to change. And that's when. You change your tactics, you create some distance, you make sure you know where your taser and your gun are, but it really never got to that. We, uh, Thanks to Chris did a really good job. We took a laptop into the house that we used to show Chris's PowerPoint presentation to the Commonwealth because that, that presentation was very powerful. It showed almost an open and shut case. And thankfully, because of the video, we knew that it was Mark that actually did the killing. Tiny was just there. So it really was just we were prepared to play the entire PowerPoint for him. But before we even got to that, we advised him of his rights. He waived them. We went into the case. And it was really we preyed on his reputation with Mark Taylor. It's like he's not your friend. You know, he treats you like crap. What do you think he's going to do when we present this information that we've got He's going to point the finger at you, and with your criminal record, people are going to believe it. Honestly, answer this question. Do you think Mark Taylor would do a year in prison for you, or would he send you away for 20 years? It's like you've done 20 years before. 
You've proven you're tough. How about you be smart for once? Don't be tough. Be smart. And then he gave it up. So he knew at this point when you all were there that you suspected Mark. Yes, it was very early on. We didn't beat around the bush. We told him, it's like, listen, we, we reviewed your first statement. They're lies. We've got it verified through other witness statements, through the video. And we can tell by your demeanor on the video that you were sick to your stomach what you had just witnessed. We can tell that Mark Taylor was very, very happy. So we know that your heart wasn't in this. We know Mark was calling the shots. If you don't help us right now, you're going to get arrested and Mark's going to point the finger at you and he's going to get away and you're going to do life. And he he thought about it for a second. He's like, yeah, I'll tell you what you need to know. Wow. And at this point, I guess, are you all audio recording? Because yes. I was going to say, could he retract all of that? Yes. No, yeah, we were we were on recording since the moment we knocked on the door. So he goes ahead and tells you all the whole story. Yes. Did it fit pretty much what you knew? Yeah, it's verified everything that we believe. There were some sketchy moments because it's Chris and David both dealt with this. Okay, I'll tell you what you want to know, but I really need to talk to my wife, mom, grandma, whoever before. And we're, it's like, absolutely, we get that. So he's trying to call his wife. She's not answering. And so we're just sitting around here twiddling our thumbs. And so finally we start pressing. It's like, listen, you're going to get to talk to your wife. But at this point, we need to proceed on. And so he started talking again and gave us the the details and where uh, the last question was, like, where would you take Alex? And he said, down to the river by Riptides. Wow. And that's what you all had thought from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So that interview ended and Steve and I drove Mr. Ballard to Riptides and he directed us where he put the barrel. Right in. after that house interview, you all went there. Directly there. How was he in the car? Docile. Did he speak much? He Question if we were afraid during the interview because of his size and his history. And that's why we informed him that we'd already had our guns in our pocket. <laughs> I was not going to mess with a 450-pound man. No, I, I'd say not. So does, did he know at this point after you all took him for this to find the barrel or for him to point it out, did he know he was going to be arrested or did yes. he just think no, he, he was, was doing in a handcuffs? Good deed? No, okay. we explained everything to him. It's like, we're going to talk to the Commonwealth with your cooperation. And it's not just what he told us. It's what we knew already from video. Mark was the one that beat him to death. So we felt comfortable in just charging him with, I believe, kidnapping and tampering with physical evidence. One of those charges, which he had already served in the past. Yes. So you go down to the to the river. And at this point, he just points out kind of what you all thought, Chris, that he had rolled it and Yes, we followed in the excuse me. We followed in the car behind Rob just for safety reasons. In case Rob got thrown out of a window. Right. And we could pick him up and put him in the trunk and carry on with Steve and Tiny. But um we followed him down to the river and again the river was muddy still from the rain and the snow that had had come. So we couldn't see anything. He just pointed in the general vicinity. And uh, he was still in cuffs when he got out of the car. And uh, we followed him back to the police station. And this is very important. The smallest things that mean a lot to these suspects when you're interviewing them, you better come through when you're the detective. So Stephen Rob had his uh, wife come down so he could talk to her. And they waited to, before they took him to the jail so she could talk. And he was he was very cooperative after that. Did he say that when... Alex was put in the barrel. Was he alive or was he already dead at that point? Or did that ever come out? 
he was dead at that point. Mr. Ballard testified that he died, he believed, in transit from National Avenue to the garage. From the beating that took place behind National Avenue. Yes. Did he describe how he believed that that he died? Did he talk about any details that made him think he had died in transit? Yeah, when he verified that he drove Mark's car to Alex's house, Mr. Taylor went inside, got Mr. Johnson. They both came out. Mark got in the back seat. Alex was in the front. And very shortly after they got in the car, um, he goes, I believe Mark had a belt or something, put it around Alex's neck, started choking him and pulled him into the back seat. Um, So I was instructed to drive on. Uh, They continued to fight and it looked like Alex got a door open. And so at that point, Mr. Ballard stopped the car, got out. He admitted to punching Mr. Johnson to secure him a little more. Um, Then they drove off. And one of the witnesses reported a a shoe falling off of uh, this victim's foot. Um, He was able to locate that shoe and threw it into the bushes should the police need it at a later date. So um, Chris was the one that met with the witness, I believe, and located the shoe. Chris also did a search of Mr. Johnson's computer and found a photograph with Mr. Johnson wearing those exact same shoes. So at that point, it was just another you know piece of the puzzle that we could fill in. And that was followed up by the autopsy when we took Mr. Johnson's body up to Frankfurt. When they pulled him from the barrel, uh, he was only wearing one shoe. Speaking of the barrel, tell me how it was when you all, when you finally found that. Did you find it the moment that Tiny pointed it out? No, it was still very foggy and cloudy. So the you river knew you was. were going to have to go back. Yes. At what point what kind of time frame was it before you all went back to try again roughly four days i believe because we talked to mr ballard on the 20th and i believe the 24th was the best day for the fire department for the best conditions they're like it looks like it's calming down the river should lower quite a bit so let's do it on this date so i mean they're the ones going in the water so we certainly oblige whatever works best for you guys so so what happened when you all got there on the 24th Steve Steve loaded up his barrel that we mentioned earlier, put it in the back of his truck and brought it down. And the whole unit went down in case there was uh, maybe we had to do knock and talks. Uh, and if it was if a bear was floating down the river, if anybody had seen it, we had detectives to at least do uh, knock on doors and talk to witnesses that lived down there. So while everybody's unloading their cars, Rob and I and uh, there was another uh, Detective Franz Wolf, we walked up on the bridge just to get a nice view since it was a sunny day and it hadn't been for a long time, but it was still cold. Then we just looked down and probably 20 feet from the bank, you can see a blue barrel top just sitting wow. in, in the water. Just sitting there. Mm-hmm. So I imagine you run back down that bridge. No, we don't run. No, no, no. You are getting uh, nowhere quick. No, Rob just yelled down, there it is. There it is. <laughs> it was, yeah. Very high tech. <laughs> there it is, guys. Much yeah. safer than schoon over running. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So at that point, they just go in. The the firefighters or the dive team go in, and they just that swift and and retrieve it. And I guess at that point, do you all open the barrel when it comes up? Very lightly. We wanted to make sure that there was a body in there, but that barrel was part of our crime scene, so we didn't want that disturbed. So we were able to verify that we believe there were human remains in there. And then we 
took the entire barrel up to Frankfurt for the autopsy. And at that point, our forensic service detectives were there and processed it step by step. As again on TV, it doesn't happen quite that way to retrieve a body out of the water. I won't get into too many details, but there's safety reasons that the the fire department has to have two divers, two ladders to get out. They can only be in cold water for a certain length of time. And the process was was to take a float and put it underneath the barrel so nothing would fall apart. Once they blew that float up, it rose to the top. And then they we had a tow truck reach into the water, put straps, the divers put straps under it and lifted it up and then place it into the corner fan. Now the lid to make sure confirm there was a body, they used uh, saw and they opened the top of that lid like a can opener in a V and they just peeked in there and saw that there was a body until they got up to the state medical examiner's office. Wow. I bet that was just heart stopping when you found that. It's a surreal feeling. There's a, it's kind of morbid to say, but there is excitement to it. The, the chase is getting close to over. But the human side of you checks yourself very quickly. You know, we're we're very excited. The case is coming together. We've made one arrest. We're going to make another. But again, we've just discovered that a, a person's life was over. And now you have to tell the family that you finally yes. found Yes, that's exactly right. Now you're going to have to answer some tough yes. questions. And by this point, I, I think you'd agree, Rob. I think they were able to uh, receive those answers they became stronger and stronger as as time had passed because there had been some time. I think it was a month. Yes. Right? So their time had passed where they kind of had that feeling and all they wanted was Alex back. That's all yeah. it meant to them. Sure. So. so when you all take that up to the to the medical examiner's office at this point, has anyone contacted Mark to let him know that he's getting ready to be placed under arrest? Well, the night that we got Mr. Ballard's confession, as soon as we finished the interview, I typed up an arrest warrant for Mark Taylor. He was not in Kentucky at the time. We had believed that he had gone to visit family in Virginia, verified that through an uncle, um, stated that, yes, he was here, but he has left. We had about seven different cell phones for Mark that he used. He kept on him at all times. So we had done search warrants for all of those. They'd all been terminated. He'd turned those off. So we really had no idea where Mark was for a couple of days. And yeah, it was a, that was back to the frustrating part. How did you go about locating him? I can assure you it wasn't any brilliant work that Chris or I did. We got a break. Um, You must have called Dave Richardson again to do his technical stuff. No, no, no. No, this really was. This was a a, a good person, a concerned person. Um, Mark had contacted him shortly after he'd learned that there was an arrest warrant for him. And this person's father lived in Mexico. And he called him up. It's like, hey, is your dad still living in Mexico? And he's like, yeah, yeah, he does. Like, man, I I think I'm heading down that way. Do you think he'd mind if I dropped in and said hello? He's like, no, I'm sure that wouldn't be any big deal. And so they talk for a little bit longer. Um, then he gets off the phone and says, that was weird. I haven't talked to Mark in forever. So he Googles Mark Taylor and does enough searching to find that he's a suspect in a murder. So he then contacts uh, the Lexington Police Department. 
provides the number that Mr. Taylor contacted him on. So I come in from work, do a, a search warrant with an exigent circumstance to it. They immediately send me the location of the cell phone. And you may not know how it works, but we'll, they'll send us uh, longitude and latitude. It's not like an address or anything like that. So we then we type in the latitude and longitude into a Google Earth. And sure enough, it starts coming uh, shows earth and then it just narrows down narrows down narrows down and the dot where he was located from my first vision it looked like he was already in mexico so steve mccown and reed bowles were in the office at that point where they got to see me throw a bunch of chairs and (laughs) case files and a cabinet over i was livid I do rub off on him. That's my normal reaction. Apparently yeah. so. Did so, yeah, some stuff got broken in the office. Were you mad because you didn't want to go to Mexico? No, it was it was going to make it so much more difficult to extradite him. Like if we'd sent the marshals down, it's just an entire nightmare. Mexico, we've worked with them before, and they're very cooperative, but it just takes so much longer. And they won't extradite if it's a capital case. Like if there's the death penalty on the table, they'll refuse to extradite simply because they don't believe in it. So there were some hurdles to get over. Um, But we kept looking, kept looking, and it looks like he had not crossed the border. He was in a small town called Far, Texas. So I immediately called their department and tell them the latitude and longitude of a suspect that I'm looking for. I give the physical description, possible vehicle description. And they said, well, the only thing in that area, it's a very industrial part of the city. And I'm listening to their 911 dispatch. They're communicating with each other while I'm on the phone. And someone said, oh, there's that shady motel down there too. Don't forget about that. I'm like, could you please send an officer down there to verify if there's a vehicle, whatever's going on? And I stay on the line with him. I hear the officer pull up and he's like, yeah, I see the vehicle that you described. And he's like, wait, there's a male white that just came out and got into the car, gave him physical description. He's like, that that's what this person looks like. He just went back into the hotel. I'm like, okay, can you guys get some other units there, some detectives there? Because he's got a, a murder warrant. And while I'm explaining all this to them, I hear the officer get back on the radio. It's like, he's running to the car. He's running to the car. He's in the car. Hey, you know there's more to the story, so go download the next episode like the true crime fan that you are. The Murder Police Podcast is hosted by Wendy and David Lyons and was created to honor the lives of crime victims so their names are never forgotten. It is produced, recorded, and edited by David Lyons. The Murder Police Podcast can be found on your favorite Apple or Android podcast platform, as well as at murderpolicepodcast.com, which is our website and has show notes for imagery and audio and video files related to the cases you're going to hear. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn, and YouTube, which has closed captions available for those that are hearing impaired. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe for more and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast from. Subscribe to the Murder Police Podcast and set your player to automatically download new episodes so you get the new ones as soon as they drop. And please tell your friends. Lock it down, Judy.